0: What I'd like you to do is turn to um, John chapter 2. Let me read this text. Uh, What we're talking about is the question, would Jesus entrust himself to you? Of course, he has, but the question is personally, has he? Listen to this text. It begins in chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? He's cleansing the temple. And It's a pretty radical thing to do, and so they're wondering, by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus said, he gives them a riddle, it's called Mishal, and he says, destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? is what the next verse says, but he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the statement that Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Do you remember the very first sign of, of uh, Jesus and his ministry? Do you remember that? was that the wedding of Cain of Galilee turned the water into wine. He goes on, he says, He was doing a Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them. That's what we're talking about is he wouldn't entrust himself to them, them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in a man, and so he wouldn't entrust himself to them. Now, this is going on and on because uh, he's confronting them over their sin and violation of the the law of God that they claim to live under, and uh, they were quite irritated at him that he would have the gall to be the one who tells them that they're not living up to the commitment that they made to the living God. And so Jesus does not entrust himself to them. What's the primary thing that God wants from you? Is it obedience or relationship? Think about that for a second. Does he want obedience or relationship? He wants both, of course. But uh, James Houston wrote a book called The Transforming Friendship. It's a wonderful book. If you ever get a chance, if you ever see one, pick it up. It's a good one. The Transforming Relationship. And he talks about real friendship in this book, entrusting yourself to someone and uh, he talks about the need to be transparent and in in order to enter into a real relationship there has to be some s- certain characteristics. If you remember Augustine uh, told the story about how he got saved, he was in somebody's backyard and uh, he heard someone reading uh, Romans 10:11 which says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. He took that that was a word from God that God wanted him to know that he wanted him to turn to him and he did and put his trust in him, and and evidently Jesus entrusted himself to him as well. And that's what happened to all of us when we came to faith in Christ, that Christ entrusted himself to us. We have a huge responsibility, and through this whole section, he's talking about confronting the people of Israel because they were not living up to their responsibilities. And so we, we have a lot of this. It's not legalism. It's not about how you earn salvation. It's how you respond to the one who lives inside of you. The Bible is very clear that every Christian has the Lord Jesus Christ living in him. He indwells us. And so we have a responsibility in our relationship with him. We want to understand that we need to bow the knee and to be transformed by what he is doing in our lives. The religious leaders in this context saw him as a threat to their idols. Verses 18 through 20. We read that, but let me read it again, just these three verses. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us? We're doing these things, and Jesus answered, Destroy the sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said this sanctuary took forty six years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? That's that was quite an audacious thing for him to say, wasn't it? If you destroy this temple, and they assumed he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of God, if you destroy it, I'll raise it up in three days. Now we know from the larger context that he was talking about his own body. Because his body was a temple. This is why he came into the world. The Father brought the Son into the world so that the world could come to know God. No one knew God like Jesus, his Son, his eternal Son. And so he came into the world to show us what God was really like. That's the reason that we have to know Christ in order to know the Father. So these religious leaders saw him as a threat to their idols because they could control their idols. But you have to ask yourself what's the proof of his authority to regulate the temple have to do with that? Well, their question betrays two critical deficiencies. First, they were closed to his penetrating judgment. He had asked them questions very specifically, the temple cleansing. You have been weighed in the balance, Jesus told them. You've been weighed in the balance and have been found wanting. In other words, our judgment of you is that you have failed the test. They were more interested in their own status and power than pure worship and a sign and a right approach to God. Second, there was this haunting suspicion that he really was a heaven-sent prophet. And so it bothered them that Jesus was saying these things to them, and they had this sneaking suspicion that he really was a messenger sent from heaven. If he was a hooligan or maniac, they would put him away. They would have him committed. That's what people do with people who are hooligans or maniacs. And uh, if he was a prophet from God, what would they do? Well, here's what they do. They asked him, they requested from him a miraculous sign. Now, a sign is one type of miracle that points to something. It makes something clear. And so they want a sign that would validate the fact that he has the right to ask them these questions. He has the right to challenge them. Uh, They're requesting from him a miraculous sign. But what would this do, this performing a sign at their demand? They asked for it. If he just did what they wanted to do, what what would this teach us? Well, it would teach us that he can be domesticated. He can be controlled like an idol. And you and I, we have to admit it, we'd love to have a God like this that we could control. What does powerful stunts? He does powerful stunts for us to maintain our allegiance. That kind of uh, allegiance is not worth having. We need a God who is totally independent of us, and he acts on our behalf because of his love for us, not because of what we've done. God doesn't doesn't treat you based upon uh, the fact that you have passed all the tests, but he treats you based upon who you are to him. He actually deals with you based upon your identity to him. This is the way parents do. Parents treat their children based upon who they are to them. Our children are related to us in such a way that even when they fail, we don't have as harsh a response as many people do because we have a special relationship. And God has a special relationship with his people. And so what Jesus says, he gives them another one of these michaels, a riddle, what happens is, you can tell this is a riddle because he uses several terms that you could interpret in two different ways. Like, what is a temple? What is this temple he's talking about? Well, it could have been the temple in Jerusalem, or it could have been his physical body. First Corinthians 6.19 talks about the fact that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I will raise it up. And he's talking about if you destroy this body. Is, are they going to destroy his body? Absolutely. They're going to crucify him. They're going to beat him. They're going to treat him horribly. This is the Son of Glory. This was his hour. His hour came when he was put under the authority of men, and they did to him what they desired to do, which was shameful. But he says here, if you tear down this temple, I will raise it up within three days. This is the resurrection of his body, and that's what could be reconstruction, but he's talking about resurrection. Why, why do you have riddles? Why do we have riddles in the Bible like this? We have them because it unveils the heart. The way that we answer to God's questions like this reveals our hearts and where they really are, and that's what happened here. Now, they are totally stymied by this. He's offering them a powerful, miraculous sign to justify his authority. If you think about it, it's very appropriate what he said, because if anyone could restore the temple within three days of its complete destruction, they must have the authority to regulate its practices, even if he was talking about the... Temple in Jerusalem, because that's what he was doing. He was confronting them because they had filled this temple, which was to be the very presence of God. They had changed it into a place where it was filthy, it was dirty, it was noisy, and they didn't care, they weren't worried at all about what God thought about it. Now, his response actually reveals his glory, but their response reveals their blindness. They say to him, It took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? They're blinded by pre-commitment to idols, kind of like Ahaz. Remember Ahaz in Isaiah 7? Uh, He is very calm about this news has come through God, through a prophecy, that their country was going to be invaded by enemies. And Ahaz acted as though he wasn't worried at all. But what we know from what Isaiah tells us, he had made a deal under the table. He made a deal with one of the the largest, uh, most powerful nations in the world, but they were also pagan. And he made this deal with them, and so he wasn't worried about the destruction of his city, his of Jerusalem, and that kind of thing. So this revealed the fact that he trusted more in his pagan king that he was relating to than he did in the living God. They missed the truth of Jesus' words. He later used these same words when he said, uh, in three days I'll raise it up again. This was used at his trial, if you remember. That's one of the reasons they said they had to crucify him, because he said... If you destroy the temple in Jerusalem, he'll raise it up in three days. And it was explained that he was talking about his own body. There was going to be a resurrection within three days. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, we're told. It says over and over again they were believing in his name and his signs which he was doing. But their faith was precarious, and it was precarious because of this. They were captivated by his powers, but not his person. Sometimes we can do that. We can be really captivated about what we hear that Jesus can do, but we're not captivated by who he is. And we're told by many different people, Dietrich Bonhoeffer made a point of this, that you have to first answer the question, who, before you answer the question, what? Who is this that we are dealing with? Who is it that we are desiring for him to entrust us to himself, to receive us, and to call us one of his own? And that's what this whole text is all about. He's talking about the fact that after three days, he's going to be raised from the dead. Now, they should see this incredible connection. Jesus viewed the temple as a type. It was a type, and he was the antitype. Now, an antitype is the fulfillment of the type. The type of the temple was the presence of God. Remember in John 4, when when the woman at the well said to Jesus, Now, you people say we should worship in Jerusalem, but we believe you should worship here in Mount Gerizim. And he says... He confronts her and says, "That is not true, because God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Neither in this this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship in the future, but you will worship with with the God that you have a relationship with. And so we are to worship Him because of who He is to us. They miss the point pretty badly, and we can miss the point." Uh, He says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this about being raised within three days, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus has spoken. Now, these trusting relationships result in a growing understanding. We first have faith, and then we have understanding. We don't understand first. Sometimes we think if we can explain the gospel in such a way that a person can understand it better than normal, they will turn to Christ. But the fact is, it is the Spirit of God who moves the heart to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then understanding follows. Because once you receive Christ, he comes to live within you, and the Spirit begins to live within you. You have a brand new ability to understand the Scriptures. You read it, and you hear it, and you understand it. Because that's what God has given you as a gift. He's given you as a believer. The gift of understanding through the Holy Spirit. And so it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. In three days, he was raised up. Remember, Jesus was in the tomb for three days, and then he was raised from the dead. And uh, if you've ever read the the account of the walk on the road to Emmaus, remember that one? Seven miles, it was a seven-mile walk. And what was happening was these disciples were walking down to Emmaus and Jesus walks along and falls in beside them, and they begin to talk, and they start telling him what a horrible thing has just happened. And he said he didn't know what they were talking about. He said, you must be the only one in this area that doesn't know. And so they begin to explain what he had experienced. They were telling him about his death on the cross, and then the rumors that he had been raised from the dead he had been seen by a whole bunch. We're told in First Corinthians 15 that uh, Jesus was seen by 500 brethren at once. And some of them are still alive, he says, and some have, have died. And so there was this huge number of people that had seen the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in Christian history. Nothing has changed the church's status in the world like that, because it's shocking. It's very shocking that Jesus had raised his son from the dead. Totally different than anything anybody had ever experienced. But it was because he wanted to show the power and his affirmation that what Jesus did on the cross was payment in full for our sins. It's an amazing thing that we can fall into this trap of believing that God is controlled by our goodness. If we're doing good, God's doing good. If we're doing bad, God's doing bad. Maybe he's up there with a big frown on his face and rubbing his chin. But that's not the truth. The fact is that God loves you, and so he works in your life. He tells us that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what he's talking about there is because of your relationship with him and your love for him, he actually works in your life and he brings every, everything that God allows to come into your life. He works it together so that it produces good things. Now, a lot of times we may get down the road 30 years before we can say, you know, I never did understand why God allowed that, but now I do. Now I do understand. He had a purpose. Because he's conforming us into the image of Christ, and he's refining our faith. The most common word he uses for the purpose of trials is refining our faith. And he uses the word for refinement that was refinement of silver and gold. And you know how they refined silver and gold. They took gold or silver ore, and they would put it over fire, and it would melt. And then they would have the ability to separate the impurities from it, and they would let it harden again. So it would become more and more pure. Well, think about that as a picture of your trials that God allows you to go through difficulties, and uh, it's like being over the fire. And then what God can do is he can remove the impurities, and your faith can become pure. Your faith can become more consistent. Uh, Sometimes going through difficulties is really hard, and we want to complain and pull back. We can't believe God would allow such a thing to do this. A person that I highly regard one time called me up on the telephone. It was long distance, and he said, uh, Why is God allowing this in my life? And he was talking about uh, something that really hurt a lot. And uh, I said, I don't know exactly, but I know this. He's refining your faith. And he loves you, and it's a manifestation of his love for you. That's what he tells you to do, that you are to to take it as an act of his love for you and refining your faith so that you could trust him the way you want to trust him. And that's the truth. That's exactly what the New Testament teaches us. When he says here that they believe the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken, these obviously have a relationship because they're, it's the same content. If you believe one, you will believe the other, in other words. If you believe the scriptures which say he's going to be raised from the dead, and you believe his words, in three days I'll raise it up. They're speaking of the same thing. And so uh, you you could read uh, Isaiah 53, which was written back in 70-some years before the events. Uh, and Yet he he's talking in specifics, very specific, about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection as the payment for our sins so that we could be right with God. And so he says here in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. In other words, you can't, you can't understand the word of God unless you look to Christ. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. And so if we want to understand the Bible, we have to understand what it says about Jesus Christ. He is the one, and that's what's going on here. They were hearing things about Christ that they didn't expect to. They had no reason to expect it. They had a completely different question than they thought. It took 460 years to build, and you think you're going to do away with it in no time? That you can make it better in three days? You've got to be kidding. But he was talking about the resurrection of his body. You know, that when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples saw him and they recognized him. And they were stunned by it. And that's why the trip on the road to Emmaus is so amazing, is these men have no idea who they're talking to. And they're talking to Jesus Christ, the man that they are talking about, that he had been crucified and he died. We thought we were gonna, it was going to be the kingdom coming in. And yet now he's been killed on a cross. And Jesus says, isn't that what the scriptures say? Yes, it is. It is what it says. It's what isaiah fifty three says He's going to be crucified. He's going to be crucified so that our sins can be paid for in full, fully paid for, removed so that we have a relationship with God that is not at all hindered by our sinfulness and our brokenness. We can be totally transparent. We can be totally relaxed because the the God of the universe has taken care of our sin problem, and we can be made right with him in in Galatians chapter three. You probably know about this verse. It says, but when faith came, and you wonder, what is he talking about when faith came? What does faith have to do with it? Well, he's talking about Jesus in the context. And so what he's saying is, I need all of Christ. I need Christ. It's faith in Christ when you have nothing else to hold on to. When he talks about when the faith came, he's talking about Christ came. He's the object of our faith. He's the one that we have trusted completely. And it's what he has done for us that is the basis of our salvation. So this question of, will Jesus entrust himself to us? Yes, and he will cause us to be entrusted to him, because we simply believe. That's all. He knows we're weak. He is very, very aware of it. He's very aware of our brokenness and our weakness, and yet he loves us. We're told in John 3.16, "...for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life." The word perish means to be a ruin for which something is created or made. When we are saved, we are no longer perishing. We are experiencing the very purpose for which we were created, which was to have a relationship with the living God. That's what he made us for, was relationship with him. And that's why he's given us faith to believe in Christ so that we could experience the benefits of this faith relationship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the one who said, you have to first ask the question, who, before you ask the question, what? Because this is the whole point, and this is the point that they missed, that the most important thing is, who is God and who is Jesus Christ? That's what's important. Does he have the power to do what he says he's He's going to do? But what they wanted to know was, how are you going to do it? You know, what, what, what are all the details? Because they had they had faith uh, in, in the, these words that were spoken, but they didn't have faith in the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who is our Savior and with whom we have perfect confidence. I can talk to him. I can tell him my deepest, uh, needs. We're told in, in, uh, Philippians chapter four, verse six and following there. Um, it's in the translation, the, the New Living Translation, it says that we should worry about nothing, but pray about everything. That's a pretty good ratio, isn't it? You worry about nothing and you pray about everything. And he says, we tell him what we need. We thank him for what he's done and we expect him to work in our lives. And we're told that what he will produce is peace that we can understand. Peace that we can understand. Imagine that. You go through trials and all your peace is gone. I've talked to so many people who are in the midst of a trial that is so, it's just pulling them apart. And what God says is, if you will trust me, if you will cast everything on me, if you will come to me and tell me what you need and thank me for what I am doing and what I have done in this situation, you'll have peace, which you can't even explain. It goes beyond your ability to understand it. And this is what we look forward to, is we want God to give us the peace that we desperately need in order to to live our lives, even through the trials. And so, what I want to do is pray for you that you will believe that Jesus will entrust himself to you and you can entrust yourself to him because it is based upon love. It's based upon his love for you and you in response can give yourself to him. He wants to bless your life. He wants to fill your life with, uh, I, I ran into something not too long ago, a few months ago, I think I've mentioned it before. Forgive me for repeating myself if I did, but I, I ran into this truth that uh, it's the glory of Christ that brings us to worship. When we see his glory, that's when we are pulled to worship him. We see his glory in so many ways and it's the spirit of God who opens our eyes to see that. We're told that uh, the sinners stay away from the light that is God's presence because they don't want to be exposed. But when we have come to put faith in Christ, we can walk into the very presence of God, into the light and have fellowship with him because he has given us his life. And his life gives us the ability to know him and to to reckon with him and to deal with him. And so let me pray for all of us. Our Father, we come before you and we ask you to work in our lives that you would bring us to the place where we find ourselves completely trusting in Jesus Christ and him giving himself completely for us. We thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that he has so many plans, good and wonderful plans for us. And we pray that we would be anxious, Father, to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you and that Jesus Christ could work in our lives. We're so thankful for that. We thank you, Father, that you're able to fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please you in all respects. That's what we long for, Father. We pray that we would understand that what we need is a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, more than anything else. We need Christ, and we pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for him. Give us an opportunity to experience his glory so that we might truly worship him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.